This episode of New Politics was recorded on July the 17th, 2020. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at what the result in the Eden Monero by-election means for both sides of politics, the release of the palace letters and the future of the Republic, and we ask the question, should the Prime Minister go to the football during a time of crisis? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'm hip with the kids. It's a result the Australian Electoral Commission will officially declare today, but the Eden Monero by-election has virtually been over for some time, with the Labor candidate, Christy McMahon, claiming victory last week. There was a slight swing against the Labor Party, but with the amount of resources the Liberal Party put into trying to win the seat, it's a seat that they should have taken, and they should have taken it quite easily. Scott Morrison was seen during the campaign on a daily basis. He made big announcements on defence spending. A rehashed Snowy 2.0 project started pouring long-withheld money into the region, still suffering from the effects of the bushfires. Had massive media support behind him, as well as massive personal approval ratings. But still, it wasn't enough to translate into votes on the ground. It's a by-election the Liberal Party should have won. They should have won it quite easily, but they didn't. Historically, it was a bit against them. A government has not won a by-election of opposition since 1920, and that's on both sides of uh, politics. Having said that, they threw a lot of resources of government promise of pork barrelling, belated benefits into the area. One of the things, of course, is that they had a terrible time in getting a pre-selected candidate. Fiona Cotvoice was the fourth was the fourth candidate, and uh, she was, to their credit, she was a local, which explained the swing to the Liberal Party in Cobago, which I believe is where she's from, more or less. However, a lot of that pre-selection infighting was done in public, and that that's not a good look. Labor went with Christy McBain, another strong local candidate, early, stuck with her. I don't know how many people were interested in the job beforehand. That is, as it should be, an issue for the branch, whereas the Liberal Party tended to spill it all out in public. And to be fair, there was no really impressive candidate before Fiona Cotvoy's. One by one, though, they dropped out. I think they knew that the seat was going to be very hard to win. And to give the Liberal Party credit, they threw everything into it. They fought it very hard. They were never really in it either. I know it was close, but it, they were never in front. It was never, there was never really much doubt. Labor also got the support of the uh, Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. After that came out, I was a bit more prepared to think that Labor might win, given the declining national vote. Shooters, Fishers and Farmers generally tend to support Labor because they're disaffected national. They They have won a few seats quite comprehensively off the nationals. It'll be interesting uh, to see how they deal with Labor policies when they get more seats. Having said that, the personal standing of Scott Morrison may well have helped keep the vote close. Fiona Cotvoy's said very little during the campaign. It, it was all big name liberal people bust down to the seat to walk around and meet people. That to me was a fairly brave uh, strategy. To call Dave Sharma a liberal superstar, as one of the papers did, I thought was 
perhaps overegging the pudding a little. He's a backbencher. Okay, he's in the seat that Malcolm Turnbull held and has been a very safe uh, liberal seat since Federation, but he's not a superstar, I wouldn't have thought. Um, and Scott Morrison was down there a lot. Well, the seat of Eden Monero is considered to be like a microcosm of Australian society. It's got a mixture of wealthy and disadvantaged areas. It has a similar demographic structure. It's, it's got rural and semi-urban areas, manufacturing and farming. It, it is usually a seat that's held by the government of the day, but not this time around. And because it's reflective of the rest of Australian society, it's a very good litmus test for the main political parties. Relatively speaking, and when considering all the resources that were thrown into the seat or into the campaign by the Liberal Party, it's a seat that they should have won. But perhaps their intention was more about destabilising Anthony Albanese and, and ensuring that he lost the seat or didn't have an easy win so that there would be more pressure placed upon him. But of course, there was always going to be a lot of pressure placed upon Albanese. And if Labor had lost the seat, well, there would have been even more pressure and more scrutiny placed upon him by the media. And even if Labor had have won comfortably, they, the media probably would have argued that Labor should have won by more. Albanese is in a position where he just can't win, irrespective of what he does. Yeah, if Christie had got a 95% swing to her and everybody but the members of the other party. And the other thing you've got to remember, too, is that there were 14 candidates in the seat. You know, if everybody but those other 14 candidates had voted for her, the media would have framed it as, oh, this has got nothing to do with Anthony. This is all to do with Christy McBain's personal popularity. If Anthony had gone in and, uh, you know, rescued all the orphans from a burning orphanage in the seat, they'd have blamed him for causing the fire or, you know, look at this show pony. The media landscape is becoming very interesting. And it, to me, the huge monopolies are in their, I don't want to quite say they're in their last stages, but they've gone completely rabid over the last five years. And this morning I read the report that uh, News Corp in Australia is worth nothing. Its losses far outstrip its profits. And I think we're seeing these results as they get more desperate. Well, it's worth zero, but I'm surprised it's even at that poor level. And as we like to say, News Limited is where the news is very limited. The News Limited media, it's almost become like a cartoon show. The day after Morrison and the Liberal Party lost a by-election in Eden Monero that they probably should have won, the Sunday Telegraph announced in their headlines, Popular PM delivers Labor a brutal by-election lesson. And they also reported that there had been a savage swing against the Labor Party and that the result was a powerful endorsement of the government's handling of COVID-19 and Morrison's personal appeal was driving the swing against the Labor Party. It was only a swing of 0.45%. That's minuscule. The Liberal Party lost the seat. It would have been quite impressive to see what the News Limited headlines would have been if the Liberal Party actually won the seat. Now, this is the way that the mainstream media has always been in Australia, but as you suggested, it's become more feral and more rabid in its support of conservative politics. Who needs Pravda or the North Korea Times when you can have News Corporation producing all the propaganda you'll ever need? It's it's a serious embarrassment to journalism. I've argued for years that Australia has the worst mainstream press in the, I'll call it the, the free world. And I know that the English papers can be shocking and the American papers can be shocking. 
But the really bad papers are balanced by some really excellent papers, for example. The really bad television is balanced by some really excellent television, etc. In Australia, the really bad papers are balanced by fairly mediocre papers. I, I hate saying that. And, and I don't want to point at every single journalist and say it's your fault. We do have some very good journalists and good work does come out from time to time. But the complacency and the obvious agenda of the mainstream media becomes apparent very quickly if you if you read it for too long. That's why I like independence. And it's also an issue of knowing that these are the cards being dealt for both sides of politics. The media generally is stacked against the Labor Party and that's just mm. something that they have to learn how to deal with. But it's not the case of the media being the only issue that influences election outcomes or voting intentions. Sometimes the media influence can be overblown in election outcomes. It's it's definitely an issue that can affect election outcomes, but to what extent? And the, and the amount of favourable coverage that the Liberal Party received during the Eden Monero by-election, as well as the negative headlines for, for the Labor Party, that was quite extensive, but we'll never really know how much this affects the, the final outcome. It seems that the main factor to come out of this by-election is that the electorate is still waiting to pass judgment on the government's response and management of COVID-19. The result mirrors the result that occurred in the general election in May 2019. Not much has changed in the voting patterns in Eden Monero. But one message could be that the electorate is still waiting to see how the government's response pans out. And if it mismanages or botches the recovery process, it's it's likely to be thrown out at the next general election. Uh, it's The next election is going to be uh, very interesting. You can't underestimate the current government's will to win. We can certainly overestimate their competence in delivering what's needed, but in terms of over-promising and, to be fair, under-delivering, they are um, supreme. <laughs> and with a compliant media, who's you know worried about their survival and have probably hooked their sales to the party who they think will protect them the most, it makes things a little bit easier. The other point for both sides of politics is that choosing a strong local candidate with strong roots within that community can make a big difference. In this case, both the Liberal and Labor parties, they fielded strong local candidates, but the Liberal Party was looking to parachute external candidates, including some that had no relationship with the community or didn't even live in the seat. Andrew Constance, John Barillaro, Jim Molan. They might be winning candidates in state politics or, or in the case of Jim Molan, a candidate the Liberal Party installed into the Senate. But it, it's quite probable that they wouldn't have even got as close as Fiona Cotvoy's did. But the key message for all political parties is that having a strong activist leader with a strong relationship with the community will have a better chance of winning the seat. But the issue is always going to be, well, where are these people? How do you find them? And are they willing to put up their hand for pre-selection or subject themselves to the hard work of an election campaign? Yeah. I mean, Andrew Constance is a very strong local member. He was the terrible transport minister in New South Wales. Those people in Sydney, even today, taking 35 minutes for a 10-minute drive when we're in lockdown with the announcement of another new road that will shave 40 minutes off your trip for three months and then it'll add 20 minutes. All of that 
was part of his purview. Having said that, he is extremely well regarded in his local seat. He was probably the choice. He announced that he was running for it, then for whatever reason thought better of it. He's dealing with mental health issues thanks to his experiences with the bushfire, and of course that's understandable and he needs uh, support and help there. And running an election campaign and a stressful election campaign may have been too much for him. I'm not going to criticise him for making these decisions. I think we can criticise the party for not making sure and jumping on things um, because it, it gave an air of instability. Jim Mullen has been a terrible waste of space in the Senate. Last time he was on Q&A, he was essentially a laughingstock. And I, I don't like to say that. I really don't. Uh, <laughs> long-time listeners of this podcast may think you say this type of thing all the time, David. Yes, you're right, but I don't like to say it. And John Barillaro, as someone pointed out, John Barillaro's big achievement in New South Wales State Parliament is to continually undermine the government. And not in a way that a good National Party member should. He tends to blow things up without really knowing why he's blowing them up and not replacing them with anything better. They weren't terribly great candidates. And I think that was part of the you know, the people of Eden Monero and the people of any seat don't like to be patronised in that kind of way. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, did it expose a serious failing in Australia's political system, or is it much ado about nothing? We look at the release of the Palace Letters and what it means for republicanism in Australia. taken almost 45 years, but the letters of correspondence between the former Governor-General, John Kerr, and the Royal Family have finally been released after a four-year legal battle to release the letters by historian Jenny Hocking, and that's a release of 211 letters exchanged between Kerr and Buckingham Palace between 1974 and 1977. John Kerr sacked Gough Whitlam in 1975, and the dismissal remains Australia's biggest political crisis in its history. It was a complex series of events, bastardry and intense skullduggery from the leader of the Liberal Party, Malcolm Fraser, blocking of appropriation bills by the Senate, behind-the-scenes manipulation of the Governor-General and the sacking of a Prime Minister that should never have happened. Ladies and gentlemen, well may we say God save the Queen. because nothing will save the Governor-General. The proclamation which you have just heard read by the Governor-General's official secretary was countersigned Malcolm Fraser, who will undoubtedly go down in Australian history from Remembrance Day 1975 as Kerr's Kerr.
That was a big moment in Australian history, and the release of the Palace Letters could be another big moment too. But will it see a shift in thinking about the relationship between Britain and Australia, and could it lead to another push for an Australian Republic? It's a fairly substantial collection, 1,200 letters. I haven't seen them in person, of course. No one has, although they've been released digitally. They didn't tell us anything we didn't suspect, really. Jenny Hocking is the best historian on this stuff. She's one of the best historians in Australia uh, at the moment. Her books on Whitlam are superb. Her book on Lionel Murphy is superb. She's fair... She's judicious, she's thoughtful, and she writes exactly how it needs to be written. It's dispassionate, there's no dramatic flourish because the drama is in the events. Of course, the other thing too, I think, I haven't done the the proper review, but I think Gough Whitlam has had the most books written about him as Prime Minister. I think Billy Hughes comes in next, and then Bob Menzies. So if you read all of the Whitlam bibliography, and I've read most of it over the years, I don't think I've read all of it, there's a pretty clear picture of what's happened. I think the most groundbreaking thing or the most earth-shattering thing that the uh, letters showed was that the palace was directly involved. Now, people had always suspected that, but the letters prove it beyond a doubt. There's a small argument going on as to whether it was Martin Charteris, the Queen's personal secretary, operating without the knowledge of the Queen, or whether he's being used as the uh, arm's length distance and the Queen was a much more active part. In either case, it shows to me a deep flaw in the system. In the 1600s, the British had a very long and intense and brutal civil war in which thousands of people were killed. And the civil war was over. Who has sovereignty over the kingdom? Is it parliament or is it the king? And King Charles lost his head. Later, Oliver Cromwell loses his head for acting too much like a king. From there, the whole idea of the British system was that the monarchy was just a figurehead. The key issue is that Buckingham Palace was involved in Australian politics in a way that it never should have been involved. There were discussions involving the Queen as early as July 1975. That's four months before Whitlam was sacked. There were also discussions with Prince Charles. He's the heir to the throne, of course. And those discussions were about the possibility of Whitlam sacking John Kerr and vice versa. We suspected that these types of discussions and involvement took place at the time, and the Palace letters have confirmed this. We might not see a political crisis like this one again in Australia, certainly not a constitutional crisis, but it's certainly not an issue the Labor Party will ever forget about in a hurry. John Kerr died in 1991 and his his death was publicly announced after he was buried. Here's Paul Keating providing a motion of condolence in the House of Representatives showing how the Labor Party and the Labor movement felt about John Kerr's actions in 1975. Now, the fact of the matter was, uh, the Labor Party makes the political heroes of this country, and when they, people cross it, they wear the crosses it puts upon them. And whether it's Billy Hughes, whether it, no, that's true, whether it's Billy Hughes, whether it's Order. Billy Hughes or it's Joe Lyons, that is, that is the truth of it. And he, 
he has worn the admonition of the Labor Party. And that's what you're really talking about now. Now, the fact is, Order. he did it for one reason. He deceived his Prime Minister. He didn't tell him he was prepared to sack him. Because had the Prime Minister known that he intended to deceive him and dismiss him, another course of action would be available to him. That is the, the cur, uh, nub, nub of Sir John Kerr's problem uh, with uh, the Labor movement and those who support it, and it will be forever. It's a sad thing for him, but it's the facts. Uh, like anyone who's made a contribution in this country, they are to be admired, and in a personal sense, he came from not privileged circumstances, and he surmounted them, and he was a person of substance. But in the end, one's got to follow that substance with integrity. It was a lack of integrity in politically doing the Prime Minister he didn't have, and he suffered history's admonition as a result. John Kerr was a friend of the Labor Party when he was installed as Governor-General by Whitlam. That's generally what Prime Ministers do. They appoint someone they can work with and someone that won't cause them any dramas. That didn't happen in this case. There were key misunderstandings of the role of the Governor-General. Kerr was manipulated by Malcolm Fraser. His ego got the better of him. There's also the issue of the Liberal Country Party coalition having been in government between 1949 and all the way up until 1972. They considered that being in government was their, their right, their natural position. They weren't happy about being in, in opposition. They disliked Whitlam's agenda intensely. But there's just a small matter here. It's not up to an obstructionist Senate to change the government. It's not up to an opposition leader. And it's not up to the Queen or the Governor-General to do this. The right to remove a government and install a different government is up to the electorate. And that's what the fundamental problem was in this case. Yeah, and, and my point before that Parliament reigns supreme, Parliament is only there because of the will of the people. A majority of people in a majority of seats elect the parliament and then the leader of that party becomes prime minister in the lower house the other thing too that's not it's a bit overlooked is that the liberal party was still in major disarray uh, when menzies stepped down on australia day 1966 he handed it to harold holt who almost instantly was started to be undermined and sniped and backstabbed when holt goes missing Gorton is elected as leader. As both, I think, Don Chip and Paul Haslark pointed out, Gorton had been jockeying for the job uh, from the Senate for six months or so. So that's Gorton was fully organised and able to outmanoeuvre all of his uh, opponents. But Gorton only lasts two years when he's replaced by Billy McMahon. And, you know, if Karl Marx was right... History repeats the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. I think we can see uh, Holt, Gorton, McMahon as Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison. It's funny looking at Kerr's. He's using all kinds of odd precedents to justify himself. It's almost as if he knew that this was wrong, that it, it really wasn't the right thing. And I know that he wrote thousands and thousands of pages saying that it was the right thing and that he'd do it again and that he regretted it. But I don't know. I I get the sense that he wasn't easy about it, which makes it even more reprehensible. If he if it was something that he genuinely believed in, you could at least say, well, he stood up for his principles. But I don't think he did, which makes it even worse. And put Australia back. The other interesting thing is that Malcolm Fraser actually repealed very little of the Whitlam reforms. 
Uh, he keeps multiculturalism. He keeps free education, interestingly enough. He keeps the sewer building and the roads and, and all of that. The only thing he really gets rid of is stronger unions, and Australia went into years of strikes, and the free health system. Everything else remained a, a, a legacy that w- could be rightly ascribed to Gough Whitlam and, and the Whitlam government. And I guess we also need to look at what will now happen with the palace letters and whether it will lead to a renewed outlook on an Australian republic. I don't think the letters in themselves will create the impetus, but perhaps with the release of the letters, it might place the relationship between Australia and Britain into into the spotlight again. The Australia Act of 1986, that formally ended the scope of the British Parliament to legislate with effect in Australia. That also ended Privy Council appeals. Um, Royal Assent is still provided for all legislation passed in all Australian parliaments, although the Governor-General is the one that signs this in the name of the Queen. The Queen and the British Parliament, they have no legal influence in Australia. It's like a legal and constitutional appendix that's attached to the political system that has no need or any requirements. And it is going to be that question that if Australia does move to a republic, well, how do we actually get there? But at the basis of all of this process has to be an understanding that this is currently an arrangement that is part of a bygone era that no longer exists, and there's no need for the Queen as the head of state in Australia. There's not. With Britain's power declining daily too, do we really want to nail our, nail our colours to the head of a basically defunct empire? And in fact, an empire is a very 19th century concept. We've gone past that. I'll be really blunt here. I'm not sure that a republic is the right way to go. I'd like to see something closer resembling a democracy. But then how do we structure that? So maybe a republic is a good step to something better. Australians are very mistrusting of it, it seems. The 1999 referendum showed John Howard's political genius in that he was able to find the one crack of what model do we use? Do we use the current model where the prime minister or somebody else appoints a governor-general? Or do we use like the Irish model or the French model where the president or the Governor-General, is elected by the people. And I think that's the type of debate we need to have before we put anything into place. Because if the Republicans are serious, they'll just lose on that selling the seed of doubt. 60% of people were in favour of a Republic in 1999, but they were mistrusting of the model that was being presented. And you don't want to get caught like that again. The model that was proposed back in the 1999 Republic referendum, that was the so-called minimalist approach where a president could be appointed by two-thirds of parliament. And I can understand why they put up that process at that stage. Constitutional change is very difficult and slow in Australia. And the amendments proposed in 1999 probably would have been the least disruptive to the political system at that stage. But the electorate constantly said before the referendum, they said, well, no, we don't want a model where politicians choose the president. We want to directly elect the president. And that could have been done where the powers of the president could have been codified and restricted so we didn't end up with a repeat of the 1975 dismissal. But whether Australia kickstarts the process to become a republic again, social and political change just doesn't happen by itself. 
what is the right vehicle for this change. There, there is the Australian Republican movement headed by Peter Fitzsimons, and no doubt they'll use the palace letters to put the Republic on the agenda again, but is he the right person? Malcolm Turnbull isn't so busy at the moment. Maybe he could come onto the scene again, although, although there's always the chance that he might ruin it the second time around. I think Peter Fitzsimons has some advantages. He he has a, a a soapbox that he can stand on through his media appearances. He's a known figure. He seems like a genuinely likable figure. But I'm wondering if he's a little bit too conciliatory. I'm wondering if he's a little bit too tied up with the Sydney A-list and the Melbourne A-list. The Australian Republican movement is made up of a lot of grassroots people who work very hard on the floor of politics, as it, as it were, discussing, talking to people, coming up with ideas, trying to keep the idea alive. I'm wondering if we go away from getting in celebrity A-list people and go in and find a grassroots person who's prepared to stand up and yell when necessary, if that if that makes sense, who's prepared to actually be a much more forthright advocate. And I'm not, I don't wish to disparage Peter Fitzsimons' dedication to the cause, or even really disparage the job that he has done. I wonder if we should be looking at a more uh, semiotically democratic approach. I think Malcolm Turnbull going back in I'd start to believe then in the Illuminati conspiracy. He lost the unlosable election. He did that through a whole range. Some of those factors were out of his control. Um, <clears throat> Phil Cleary, for example, came out of nowhere in the last three weeks saying, wait a second, this isn't the model we want. <clears throat> Suddenly the media were interested. The Prime Minister had seen that gap and it made for probably a more interesting campaign and it did show the split. I shudder to think of the presidents that John Howard might have appointed, or Bob Hawke for that matter. That referendum was 21 years ago, and at the time there was yep. a big push by the proponents to let the electorate know these opportunities don't come around very often. And if you do want a republic, this is going to be the last shot in the locker for a long, long time. And they were right about that. That was 21 years ago, 1999. It's been off the agenda for a long, long time. Perhaps the palace letters will give new impetus to put the Republic back on the agenda again. We don't want to get into a situation where Britain becomes a Republic before Australia does, as unlikely as that might be. And constitutionally, it is possible for Australia to keep the British King or Queen as its head of state, even if they've lost that position in Britain. So that's a ridiculous position for a country to be in. It's, it's an, an anomaly that does need to be cleared up. We can never know what's on the political horizon. It's a situation that could be resolved very quickly or it could be another 20 or so years before we get to vote on this again. Sooner rather than later, passing of the Queen. You know, I'm not wishing death on anyone, but looking at it bluntly, she's 93 years old. Her, now, her mother lived to 102, so there's a very good chance that there's still another 10 years with the Queen, and that's, you know, that, that is what it is. When she does pass, things will become interesting. Charles has kind of implied that he probably doesn't want the job, and that might be a good time to start thinking about not having it anymore. He may pass it on to 
William, who knows? Australia could end up in the embarrassing position of having to force in some kind of minimalist model because there's no existing model because, you know, the redundancies of the royal family have come into effect, which is somewhat of, you know, a delicious irony for a government that has forced a lot of redundancies on onto the employment. I think, and we know this isn't going to happen, but if I was the Prime Minister, I would be very quietly getting a committee together of interested and qualified people. And they're not very good at interested and qualified either, but and putting together three or four models that could be presented as as an alternate to the to the current one. So we're not caught on the back foot. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, should Prime Ministers go to the football during a time of crisis? Let's have a drink to that. I survived the dinner And the air went thinner I retired to the briars But the pool it gets so loud If I die this instant Taken from the distance They will probably list it down among Australia is still facing some difficult times. The economy won't return until the coronavirus goes away. There's the rebuilding of the communities ravaged by bushfires. Climate change issues are still with us. And the number of active coronavirus cases is starting to rapidly rise in Melbourne and Sydney. These are difficult times for every country around the world and with the wide range of economic, medical and social issues that still need to be managed and resolved, Political leaders need to stay focused and ensure they're on top of all the different issues that keep cropping up. Last Friday, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, decided it was time for a holiday, announcing he was taking a short break to spend time with his wife and two daughters during the school holidays. Maybe that's fair enough, but the following day, Morrison was in the corporate box at the rugby league game at Cogra Oval, mingling with business leaders and Liberal Party donors. He's done this before during a time of crisis, but the Prime Minister does seem to have a strange idea about how to spend holiday time with his family. As Prime Minister, it's expected that you have to make sacrifices. Joe Lyons had nine kids. Enid Lyons was devastated when Joe died. They'd made him stand for a third election because they felt he was the only one who could win it. He won it and he died in office in 1939. Enid blamed Bob Menzies for years for jockeying for position. Menzies, of course, rejected these claims that he felt Joe was a very fine leader and that any speech was made criticising leadership was meant to criticise himself as well as, you know, we, we should all stand up. Bob Hawke spent, you know, one of the running jokes was Bob Hawke getting Father of the Year because he spent so much time away working, sacrificing holidays. Kevin Rudd had fairly young kids. John Howard's girls were teenagers and at high school when he was Prime Minister. And they all took holidays. And of course, you're entitled to holidays. But sometimes the job is bigger than your family holidays. And if it's not, you shouldn't be in the job. There's no shame in stepping down for family reasons, which is why so many step down for family reasons when we all know that it's something else. Well, we've said this before, but the position of Prime Minister is not a job like any other. 
taking holidays with the family at a critical time, well, it's really not on. Now, sure, we, we do want to encourage politicians and, and the Prime Minister as well to spend as much time as, with their family as possible. He put out the message that he was going to have a holiday with his wife and two daughters during the school holidays. Okay, well, we can accept that the Prime Minister needs to take time off during times when it's stressful and there's a lot of things going on. But then going to the football the day after, after you've made this big announcement that you're going to be spending time with your family, going to the football when most people around the country can't, it's almost like the Hawaii incident at the beginning of this year where Scott Morrison, during the time of massive bushfires in New South Wales and Victoria, he went overseas. He told everyone that, he wasn't going overseas. No one knew where he actually was. But then we find out that he's holidaying in Hawaii. Prime ministers do deserve to have a holiday just like anybody else does. But you've got to choose your moments. Yeah. Holidays are things where you take them after you've, you've left politics, really. And again, we want well-rested and alert public officers but we need people who are available. One of the criticisms of Whitlam, one of his had to go overseas twice a year to get away from the, and, and it's not fit for a uh, family podcast, but he called them the of the Labor Party. It wasn't a good look. It wasn't a good look then. It's less of a good look now because even though, yes, we're available via email, internet, you know, FaceTime, Zoom, however, Sometimes the physical presence says a lot more. And Morrison doesn't seem to understand this. He didn't learn his lesson from Hawaii. To annoy the citizens of Melbourne because you've gone to a sport, I think, says a lot. Melbourne, I think, is probably the most sports-mad city in Australia, but there was a lot of justified anger from Melbourne. That should have told him everything. Morrison was at the corporate box watching the game between Cronulla and Penrith. He could have actually watched it from home. I'm sure that he's got a free Foxtel subscription provided by you-know-who. He was there with business people and Scott Briggs. Scott Briggs is a former Liberal Party director. He's a key Scott Morrison ally. He's also part of the Australian visa processing company, which is trying to gain the lucrative visa processing system if it's privatised by the federal government. He also made a donation of $165,000 to the Liberal Party. Scott Morrison made sure that he was seen in the corporate box. He made sure that he was available to the public view, drinking beer, allowing television crews to record him talking to rugby league players, and again, there was more drinking. But it seems like this was actually more of a, a media stunt and a media setup as well. I think it was. It was meant to show ScoMo the good bloke, up, up, Cronulla. It was so tin-eared. They don't seem to realise that it takes a, a lot of big positive things to get a small movement in a positive direction but not many small negative things to get things moving the other way. And things are moving the other way. I know they're spinning it in things that they show more of the preferred prime minister type stuff. When there's only one prime minister, then it's a meaningless rubric. I've never really heard glowing praise of Scott Morrison the way that I would hear it of John Howard, for example. There were people who loved John Howard who thought that he, and will tell you today, that he was the greatest prime minister we've ever had. We don't have to agree on that, but it certainly is a, there's a movement of people out there. The best I've heard of Scott Morrison is basically, 
well, how well would you do in the job? Which isn't glowing praise. We know that world leaders have done much better. Jacinda Ardern springs to mind. Singaporean leadership springs to mind. So to sort of put it into he's just an average bloke doing a difficult job shows the weakness in the argument. This is not an era for average blokes. This is an era for magnificent people, or at least people who try to be magnificent. A noble failure is much better than a mediocre failure, that's for sure. So Morrison appearing at the football, there was a backlash on social media through Facebook and Twitter. There was a low level of mild criticism in some quarters of the mainstream media, but generally... Mainstream media lauded Morrison for going to the football. They said, well, he's got a right to go there. He should be going there. It's, it's, he's a Cronulla Sharks fan. He's a number one ticket holder. He deserves to be there. If you compare the treatment of Morrison within the media with the treatment that Daniel Andrews has been receiving over the past three or four months, or if you compare the treatment of Christine Nixon, the police commissioner in Victoria during the Victoria bushfires in 2010. She was harassed by the media for going to have a modest pub dinner with key fire services staff during the Victoria bushfires in 2010. She was fat shamed as well. Here's what Scott Morrison said about Christine Nixon back in 2010 about leadership and her responsibilities. At the end of the day, whatever role we're in, the most important thing is about the job, not the individuals. And so there's a judgment call for her to make there. Um, the Premier is entitled to make the view he has made. Uh, but uh, look, that was a very big event. Uh, she's clearly made a, a bad judgment call. That happens to people from time to time. But this was a very serious issue. And I think there are very serious concerns in the community about ex exercising judgment. Um, and it's incumbent on all of us in public life to make um, decisions following that in the best interests of the ongoing nature of the program. I'm not sure what people are meant to do in these circumstances. Are they meant to starve in solidarity or what exactly are they meant to do? But there's been a major difference between the way that media treats people such as Daniel Andrews or leaders such as Daniel Andrews and the way that they report on Scott Morrison. And, and some people have been asking the question, well, why is this so? Now, we can look at all of those things about the conservative media support and who the benefactors are and all those sort of things. But this essentially is payback for Scott Morrison's time at Tourism Australia when he was the CEO of Tourism Australia back in 2005 and 2006 where he pumped massive advertising dollars into News Corporation at that time. So there was massive advertising revenue from Tourism Australia going to News Corporation. There are also millions in publishing projects that were given to News Corporation in their, through their custom publishing unit in Holt Street in Surrey Hills. So, so essentially what Morrison has done or did do over 13, 14, 15 years ago was provide massive money into News Corporation and they've paid back in spades. They supported him in his pre-selection bid for the seat of Cook back in 2007 when they smeared his opponent, Michael Tauk. Since Ever since he's become Prime Minister, Scott Morrison just can rely on endless support from News Corporation and it's payback for favourable treatment given to News Corporation by Scott Morrison back in 2005 and 2006 when he was head of Tourism Australia. The Liberal government at a federal level loves to give News Corp money and it's for the favourable publicity, of course. Labor does too, actually. It Labor's tough laws often get watered down by the time they've passed through the House of Representatives. And one of the odd things is 
Why are politicians so scared of News Corp? No one buys it. You can see the piles of Daily Telegraphs and Australians, in Sydney anyway, left at newsagents, unread free copies at coffee shops, things like that. Yet perception is everything. There's this perception that News Corp can do you damage. And I suppose the argument that a slightly less explanatory headline that you see walking past may do a lot more damage than an in-depth report that nobody's reading. If politicians started to ignore these types of toxic voices, they'd disappear. And I like to point to the example of Bob Carr in New South Wales, who is New South Wales's most electorally successful prime minister. He refused to talk to Alan Jones and gets elected again and again and again. That's not the only reason, of course, that Bob Carr was able to be re-elected. But I think it, it's interesting that he didn't need Alan Jones's good graces to be re-elected. And I think it says a lot. Well, it is that issue about appearances and the assumption that key media people do have influence with key demographics that political leaders feel that they need to win over. Alan Jones is no longer at 2GB. He's moved over to Sky News. Scott Morrison speaking with Ben Fordham at 2GB. He's he's already got this audience and it might be a case of preaching to the converted, but the, the message that appears in these interviews at 2GB... They end up being amplified elsewhere through other media. But with the younger demographics in the age group between 16 to 25, and and this does include the new electors that will be eligible to vote at the next election, they don't receive their political news through mainstream media outlets. It's material that they're picking up through social and online media, Reddit, Twitter, etc. But they're not getting it through News Corporation. Mainstream media is still powerful and influential, but its power is waning and it's not as influential as it used to be. News Corp is very insidious. It owns a lot. Uh, It owns a company that does NAPLAN, for example, (laughs) which is the uh, educational books. He sold out of a lot of stuff recently, I think, Murdoch sees the strength is in the political clout he holds rather than any educational or philanthropic idea that he could do. For all the criticism we could throw at an Elon Musk, I think you can argue that part of him wants to see the world improve. We can argue about whether he's right or not, and I, I'm a bit mistrusting of him, but I do think that the, there is a genuine motivation in there to try and improve the world. I don't think that's ever been part of Rupert Murdoch's agenda. And it shows in the businesses he owns. This resonates with young people, young people looking down the barrel of a pandemic, uh, which their parents have had no experience with, uh, young people looking down the, the barrel of ecological destruction. In 1977, the Johnny Rotten in the Sex Pistols could chant, No Future. I think it's much more resonant. Maybe not Johnny, but certainly the term No Future is much more resonant in 2020. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more up until the end of August, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. 
We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.